0: Awesome, guys. If we can just bring those to a close really quickly. Cool. So, without further ado, we are going to welcome Stefan to the front. (laughs) He is going to be preaching for us this morning. Very excited to hear from him. I'm sure, Stefan, you'll give yourself um, an introduction, but I'll give you one fact about him is... I feel like he is the king of dad jokes and just maybe jokes in general, but it's a very defining feature. (laughs) Can I pray for you? Please do. Father God, thank you for Stefan. Thank you um, that you want to speak to us even more than he does, Father, as he's um, prepared and and put his heart into um, your word. Um, Father, thank you that you are going to use it and you're going to speak to us, Father. I pray that um, you will open our hearts and you will just... um, really help Stefan to hear you well, um, and to uh, teach us really clearly, um, and for it just to be awesome and encouraging and inspiring in every way. We pray for this in your mighty name. Amen.
1: So, there were three Matis, I'm, I'm learning the pronunciation of that, but basically, what is it? There were, there, were, there were three rugby players from Stellenbosch who were uh, driving down a road in a, in a bucky. We call it a pickup, but here we call it a bucky, apparently. One of those vehicles that doesn't have an, a, a back on it, right? Um, and they anyway, they saw three UCT players on the side of the road, standing beside the road. They stopped, they asked the UCT players if they would like a ride. And UCT players said, absolutely. So they opened the tailgate of the vehicle, all jumped in. And then they drove away at a pretty good clip. Um, later, the driver had to actually swerve to the left to avoid hitting a cow. They sailed over a cliff in the car, landed in a lake, went to the bottom. Well, um, the Mati players, the Stellenbosch players, they immediately, they swam to the top. They waited several minutes for the UCT players who finally surfaced. And one of the, one of the Stellenbosch players asked, what happened to you guys? And at which point one of the UCT players replied, we couldn't get the tailgate open. <laughs> so well, I guess it doesn't really matter... Um, Which culture you're a part of, Uh, but at least in many westernized cultures, guys, sports, sport rivalries, they actually play a pretty big part. So by a quick show of hands, how many of you enjoy sports? There's going to be a couple of sport analogies here. Um, Watching sports, maybe? Yeah. Uh, Playing sports? A couple of you, maybe? Good. Some of you look look the part. Analyzing sports the day after, a lot of times, you know, we sit in our sit in our sofas and talk about it. And you know, given an option, some of us might just prefer to stay home and watch the game on the big screen, um, while others will go to the stadiums at all costs. You know, you love the atmosphere and all that that entails. Well, this reminds me of a story that I read about a man in America who went to a sellout football game. And there was an empty seat beside him. And the guy behind him, he notices that the seat is empty. And he asks the guy, you know, why is, why is the seat empty? And um, the man replies, well, my wife recently passed away, and, you know, we have season passes, and she never missed a game. And then the man says, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, But couldn't you have invited maybe one of your friends to come and fill in the seat, something like that? And the man said, oh, no. Uh, They're all at her funeral. So, so, you know, many cultures, they have their specific sports that they enjoy, and they excel. Um, But the one common denominator, across most sports, and most cultures, is that you have these huge crowds of spectators watching a small number of players who are actually in the game. You know, think about it. In soccer, for example, it's the crazed soccer fans, should be a a picture coming up here, uh, watching only 22 players or you're going to have about 50,000 Springbok fans cheering on their team. Or guys in American football, 100,000 plus Americans who are having the opportunity to cheer on their team to become the world champions. <laughs> or, you know, 15 fans politely clapping for two individuals as they hit a ball back and forth (laughs) over a net. And then actually just recently, last week, just shy of 100,000 people watching two men just pummel each other in the ring. (laughs) Or you have 20,000 spectators watching just simply 10 athletes putting a ball through a hoop. You know, we love the energy and excitement that comes from our favorite teams as they compete but guys the imbalance is the same no matter which sport we love which is a majority of the people watching a minority of the people taking part in all the action you know just over a hundred years ago there was an Italian economist and sociologist it was a guy named Vilfredo Pareto and he made an observation he made this observation that 80% of Italy's wealth belonged to only 20% of the population. And, and some of you who've been studying recently or maybe have studied, um, you know this has become known, this observation actually became known as the Pareto Principle, which states that a majority of the results come from a minority of the inputs, or to put it in plain English, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. And as we look across various sectors of any society, this does actually appear to ring true. I mean, think about it. 20% of the taxpayers paying 80% of the taxes, 20% of the drivers causing 80% of all traffic accidents, a minority of the criminals committing a majority of the crimes, Minority of the factories contribute to a majority of the pollution. Some of you students in your group work. Minority of the students do a majority of the work, and so on and so on. Guys, the reality is that the church in the 21st century, where we're in right now, we're not immune to that principle a theologian, a guy by the name of Dr. Tom Rainer, he posted some interest, interesting statistics a few years ago. He said that within churches in the West, and, and I think we would qualify here in South Africa as well, that within churches in the West, the ratio of church staff to members has decreased over the last half a century. In the 1960s, there was one full-time staff for every 500 people in attendance. And now those ratios have moved to one staff member for every 76 people in attendance. And what we've seen happening in churches, including One Hope, is that we've become comfortable with a few people doing a majority of the work. Or put in a different way, Christians today are treating church as a spectator sport. And guys, it isn't. It is not a spectator sport. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, he fights against this tendency in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really starting at verse 12 and going all the way through the end of the chapter, Paul compares the church members to body parts. And it's something we've talked about here recently in some of our series. We all belong to one body, but we each have individual functions. And when we're not functioning, guys, the body is not performing at its best. Paul says this in a different way in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what Paul is telling the early churches, and then us today, is that within the church, we all have functions, and in order for us to be a healthy body, each part of the church needs to be in the game, and not up in the stands. So this notion of being involved, or getting out of the stands and into the game, it's not a new one. Moses was tasked, actually, with leading the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And guys, while this march actually should have only taken 11 days, it actually took them 40 years. And it was during this march to the Promised Land that we pick up the story that I really wanted us to unpack today. Uh, So to provide some context for this story, people of Israel, they've just left Egypt, and as they're leaving Egypt, headed to the Promised Land, they camped out at a mountain in kind of present-day Saudi Arabia, if you would, called Mount Sinai. And it's while they are there at the at Mount Sinai that God and Moses have a conversation. And God tells Moses that he wants a sanctuary, or or we call it also a tabernacle. He wants it built. And the reason he wants it built in Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 says so that I may dwell among them, so that God can dwell among his people. That's why God wants this tabernacle built. Now, guys, this tabernacle is going to be a unique structure because at this time, keep in in mind, the Israelites, they're traveling. They're a very nomadic people. They're not stationed in one spot yet. So they're traveling around the wilderness. They haven't yet made it to the land where Jacob and his 12 sons lived about 400 years prior, before they went to Egypt. And because of this, the dwelling place, this, this sanctuary of God, it needed to be mobile. It needed to be a structure that could be easily dismantled, packed up, and transported as they continued their wandering. Guys, this was a huge task, a monumental task. And it was clear that Moses was not going to be able to do this alone. It's going to require a team effort. Not even Moses, Aaron, and his buddies could do it alone. And so this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 31. And then again, the story continues in Exodus 35. Now, just as a side note here, the story in Exodus 35, or better yet, the story in Exodus 31, God is speaking to Moses. That's what we're going to be reading. But the story in Exodus 35 is now Moses communicating to the people. They're pretty much the same passage here. But here, Exodus 31 verse 6. Let's read this a second. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Aholiob, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I have commanded you to make. So here we have it guys such a simple story. God chooses to insert into the larger meta narrative what important lessons being shown here. God is building his tabernacle and he's using his people a wide variety of people to accomplish this task. And guys today God is building his church and he continues to use a wide variety of people to accomplish this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, kind of emphasizes this point. God's saying, I will be the one who builds my church. So what I want to do this morning, very simple, is just pull out a couple of principles from this story. Five principles to be exact. You guys are note takers, you can write these down. And hopefully they'll be able to encourage us, but also challenge us challenge each of us and our families as we seek to live out another value that we have here at One Hope, which is what we've been unpacking here the last couple of weeks. And this one is to be involved, the concept of all hands on deck. So with the passage in our minds, let's go ahead and start unpacking some of these principles. Principle number one. Principle number one, it's this idea that all of us have some skill God can use. All of us have some skill God can use. In this story of the building of the tabernacle, very interestingly, we see in Exodus 31 verse 6, we see that God gave skills to all the craftsmen. Read with me, I've given skill to all the craftsmen to make Everything I have commanded. Again, Paul reminds us of this again in his letters to the church in the New Testament. Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7. He says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us. Why? So we can help each other. You know, a lot of times when we think of church work, kind of the picture that comes to mind is that what we saw earlier of an athletic competition where we have anyone from two people to 22 people actually on the field, while the majority of the congregation are simply spectators. We're sitting in the stands enjoying the action and activities going on in the field that we think is for our enjoyment. Friends, this is not how God designed the church to function. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, he describes it in a way his audience in the time would understand And he writes that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You know, prior to Jesus coming, the priests in Israel's time, they played an incredible role of intermediary between the people and God. But now, today, since New Testament times, we're all described as priests having that direct access to God, and the ability then to minister to others. This isn't something that only our priests have the responsibility to do. You know, as followers of Christ, we each have skills and abilities that Paul called spiritual gifts that we need to be used for the building up of his church. So not only do we each have skills, But as we move into principle number two, God is the one who gave them the skills. Look with me in Exodus chapter 31. Again, not only in verse 3, but again in verse 6. It says, I have filled them, God has filled them with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge, in all kinds of crafts. Also, verse 6 now, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded. Guys, God equips those he calls. And it's worth noting that while God gave Bezalel and Aholiab these skills and abilities and gave all the other craftsmen the same skills and abilities, something that really stood out to me as I was studying it for for this In very practical terms, guys, these individuals, they were all equipped in Egypt. You And I find that fascinating because uh, these people that God is choosing to use in remarkable ways, they didn't receive Bible or theological training. But rather they received some of the training, the best training that the world had to offer back then. And they received it in if i could say secular institutions moses included i mean his education in the courts of pharaoh so in other words for the majority of us in this room adults students youth you know we may not have received or are receiving our training in seminaries and church-based training programs rather many of us we've received or we're in the process of receiving our training in universities, or programs outside of the church. God uses this equipping. And we need to recognize that God is the one who's going to be giving us the skills and abilities, even if we're practically equipped in the land of Egypt. So then this leads us into the next principle, principle number three. You don't have to leave the marketplace to do the work that would please God. You don't have to leave the marketplace to do the work that would please God. Be- Bezalel and Aholiab, along with the other volunteers, were using, guys, their practical skills and abilities for the building up of the nation of Israel. You know, God had chosen specifically the tribe of Levi. They were the ones who were actually going to be taking care of the church, if we could say that. But look at who, who, who God, you know who God chose, Bezalel and Aholiab. Look at the tribes they came from. Bezalel came from the tribe of Judah. Aholiab came from the tribe of Dan. You know, God has a way of using ordinary men and women in their vocations for the building up of his church. And there's another story in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah. He describes a beautiful picture. Nehemiah, again, Not seminary trained. He was a government official who took on a pretty big job of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Another beautiful picture of building of the church. And during the rebuilding of the walls surrounding Jerusalem, Nehemiah describes a beautiful way in how these workers blended the sacred and the secular in their work. Again, to provide some context here. Uh, Nehemiah and some volunteers, they're in the process of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. However, during those initial stages, there was adversity, pretty fierce opposition, even to the point of enemies attacking. So, this is where we pick up the story now. This is Nehemiah staying here. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears. Shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Guys, what a cool picture. Cool picture of the ordinary individual using the skills and talents that have been developed in their vocations for the building up of God's church. Principle number four. You may do something great and quickly be forgotten. You may do something great and quickly be forgotten. Not sure how many of you have ever heard a sermon on these two guides before. Bezalel and Aholiab. Um, Or maybe if these two guys were a focus of kids ministry lesson from your childhood back in the day. But they played a very integral role in the early history of Israel. They weren't Moses, they weren't Aaron, not even Joshua, but they were faithful to the work God called them to do. And because of them the presence of the Lord was then able to dwell among the people of Israel. And then, what about the numerous craftsmen? They weren't even mentioned. You know, he just simply says, then there were other people that helped. None of them received recognition. That was passed down through the centuries. But they still, they played a very vital role in the building of God's dwelling place. Being faithful is not the same thing as being famous. I want, I want us to, to, to settle on that some. Being faithful is not the same thing as being famous. So then this takes us into the fifth and final principle. You may not lead, but you can serve. You may not lead, but you can serve. You know, God has given each of us gifts to be used in the church. And not all of us actually have the gift of leading. Nor have we been called to this act of service. But guys, we can tradition, or we can transition from being a spectator to actually getting on the field. Now there's a tradition from American football that had its origins about a hundred years ago, 1922. And it continues, its impact continues to this day. It's actually called the, the, the tradition, if you want to call it that, of the 12th man. The tradition of the 12th man was born on the 2nd of January, 1922, when an underdog Aggie team, that's the Texas A&M's football team, was playing center college, who then was the nation's top-ranked team. And as the hard-fought game wore on and the Aggies dug deeply into their limited reserves, Coach Dana remembered a squad man who was not in uniform. He'd been up in the press box helping reporters identify players. And his name was E. King Gill. Gil. E. King Gill. He was a former football player who was only playing basketball at this time. So Gill was called from the stands, suited up, and stood ready throughout the rest of the game, which a and finally won 22-14. When the game ended, E. King Gill was the only man left standing on the sidelines for the Aggies. Gill later said, I wish I could say that I went in and ran for the winning touchdown, but I did not. I simply stood by in case my team needed me. This gesture was more than enough for the Aggie team. Although Gill did not play in the game, he had accepted the call to help his team. He came to be thought of as the 12th man because he stood ready for duty in the event that the 11 men on the gridiron needed assistance. That spirit of readiness for service, desire to support, and enthusiasm helped kindle a flame of devotion among the entire student body, a spirit that has grown vigorously throughout the years. The entire student body at Texas A&M, is now called the 12th man. And they stand during the entire game to show their support. The 12th man is always in the stands, waiting to be called upon if they are needed. So here at One Hope, we want our value, we want you to be involved. We want you to get out of the stands and into the game. And there's going to be some individuals passing around some pamphlets, something like this, while you're getting it. Um, obviously, you're going to be reading it and looking at it, but I want to, I want to continue to make some comments about this. You know, many of you here today, many of you here, you're actually already in the game. You come week in, week out to serve. During the week, there are others who are involved, maybe through life groups, service opportunities, serve Stellenbosch, among others, and even exercising the gifts God has given you to serve the body of Christ. We have individuals who are preaching right now down in Somerset West. Kudos to you guys. Again, whether you're publicly recognized or or not. Then there's others of you who you're actually you're in the stadium, you're watching the game, but you're in the stands. You're the spectators. You're content to show up and be entertained by the game. Guys, my encouragement to you is that you come out of the stands and get on the field. One Hope would like to facilitate your entry into the game as simple as possible. So when you look at this Card here. These are just some of the areas. If you could kind of picture it sort of like an an, on-ramp on on a on a highway, it's going to be a very easy way for us to get involved. And for those of you who are in the stands and and you want to be involved, you want to to get involved in church life. Um, These are, like I said, some of the areas that you can serve in here. Um, I believe next week and maybe the week after. There's going to be more talked about this. But what we want you to do is just pick some of these areas that you would love to be involved. Maybe you didn't even know these sorts of things happened within the church. Um, And put your name and phone number on there so people can reach out to you. Uh, Then in the end, at the end of the service, there's going to be a box there. Karen has it in the back. And love for you guys just to simply put this card on your way out at the end of the service. And guys, then there's going to be others, maybe, who are here. You're not even in the stadium. You know, in fact, you probably don't even know there's a game going on. Um, maybe you lost a bet. And that's why you're here at church this morning. Um, or you came because your spouse, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend, invited you. Um Maybe others because of that empty void in your heart. You know, and some of what you've heard this morning might have really intrigued you. The opportunity to be a part of something bigger than just you. To link arms with a group of people who sincerely desire to invest their lives in things eternal. You know, if that is you, if you're one of those who is out in the parking lot still, you're outside of the stadium and you'd like to learn more about this thing we call being a follower of Christ, um, I invite you to come up after this service and chat with myself or others who will be up here as well who would love to tell you more about this team and the coach that we're playing for. Uh, So I'm going to call the the band up again, and we're going to have another song. And it's a song that's, really going to be getting our hearts uh, ready for what we as followers of Christ do, which is remember what God did for us through his son on the cross. And it's the taking of communion. So Paul's going to lead us and the band, and it's going to be maybe a new song to some of you, but we want you to kind of follow along with the words, and then when they're done singing at once, then I'll come up and we'll kind of lead us in communion. Only once. Like I said earlier, as believers, we celebrate what Christ did on the cross for us. And we're commanded by him to remember it as we gather. And so this is what we're going to do now. There's stations set up around the room. I know one in the back, front, and also kind of on the four sides there. And um, maybe surround yourself with a few friends and take it together. Families can do it together. If you don't have family here, just uh, link in with somebody. And... um, go ahead and do that. The band will just be playing quietly with music in the background while we do this. Before we kind of scatter to those areas, let me pray. God, thank you so much for your the way that you reconcile us to you. God, thank you for this uh, opportunity that we can visually physically remember it. As often as we get together, and I pray that um, if there's anyone in this room, anyone within earshot of my voice that doesn't that doesn't know you yet as their personal Lord and Savior, uh, that they would they would settle that today. They would they would be a part of something that has eternal significance and impact in their life. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen.